Well, yesterday, the day we celebrate Christmas, has slipped past. But you know, I was thinking the incarnation is still present. And I'm saying this sincerely from my heart and Susie's heart. The incarnation is still present because you're still here. You've been like the incarnation of Christ to Susie and I since the last week of September till this present day. Um, Our third son, Matt, was afflicted with a very serious blood infection. Um, Almost took his life a few times, but God said, no, he's going to live. And uh, he isn't able to walk right now. Um, He also is fed by a feeding tube uh, into his stomach. Uh, You could pray January 6th that the surgery will be successful and he'll be able to start eating again. Uh, Matt's in good spirits. He's uh, following Christ every step of the way. So I'm thankful that um, we can be here. Carrie, his wife, is like an angel of mercy to him on call 24-7, working 24-7 to take care of the husband that she loves. But all of you have been so kind to us. Your love, your care, your encouragement, the ways you've gone out of your way to encourage us uh, as we go through this time. So I really sincerely thank you. You know, we, we studied a lot together, right? That Christ said, I'm the light of the world. And when he left, he said, now you are the light of the world, right? And you're manifesting the light of Christ. So thank you very much for that. Now I want to pick up on something Barrett did last week when he mentioned uh, Romania and the Samaritan Purse Ministry, uh, the Christmas boxes. He almost got me to leave the auditorium, get on a plane and go to Eastern Europe. We weren't able to be there this year because of the situation we're in. But when I saw what was going on over there, it brought joy to my heart. Every country that we've ministered in, and we've trained men in eight countries, you know that, they've all used the Samaritan Purse Christmas boxes as a way to move their ministry forward. George, as you see right here, was met by me 20 years ago. He was raised in an orphanage. He was one of those people that receives the Samaritan Purse Christmas box. George went through Bible college. Um, he's become an ordained minister. And in this next slide, you see he was looking for a building. He found a building, and he brought Brother Dave down to see this empty building. He said, Brother Dave, God's going to build a church here. And um, if you notice in the next slide, Georgie was a little prophet. That's the church today. I just received that two days ago. And a lot of that church contact came through the Samaritan Purse Christmas boxes, Barrett. Wonderful, right? Notice the next slide, all the little children in that church family, too. They're not old, and they're not dying. They're young, and they're uh, happy, and they're serving uh, Christ and um, learning to reach out to others. And part of the bridge was those Christmas boxes. So I'm just encouraging you, don't look at that lightly and just think it's, it's nothing. Because it's something that's used, I've seen it used in all the stands, Mongolia, everywhere I've been. So may God be praised for your efforts and the efforts of the people who received them.
Now I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 through 7. Pastor Zach did a wonderful job sharing a Christmas message last week, so I'm going to go on and think with you this week and next week about a couple things that will prepare us for this new year that's coming. We're going to think about the prayer and proclamation. Um, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, we'll read what God has to say to us. So please stand. Before I read, the aim of this passage is to encourage Timothy to encourage all of God's children to pray. To pray for considerate, respectful, well-functioning society in which the gospel can be communicated to everyone. This is what our fatherly God says to us. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all, to be, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. Those are the words of our fatherly God to you. And always remember, the grass is going to wither and the flowers will fade. But this word is going to stand forever. Father, we need you to move in our hearts, in our minds today by your Spirit so that we clearly understand your truth and we catch the implications and applications to our life so that we can live as imagers of you in this world. If you will do that, Father, we will be grateful eternally through Christ. Amen. Okay, please be seated. Winston Churchill is one of the most well-known names in all of contemporary history. When Winston Churchill was a young man, actually he was only 16 years old, he already had a vision of his purpose in life. He told some of his friends, this country will somehow be subject to a tremendous invasion. I shall be in command of the defenses of London. It will, fall, it will fall to me to save our capital and to save the empire. Now, that's an unlikely prediction for a 16-year-old young man to make about himself, and yet every single part of it proved to be true. I want to ask you a question now. Have you ever sensed that your life has a specific purpose? Are you aware of the tremendous evil invasion against the kingdom of God going on 
in this country? Have you ever sensed the weighty responsibility you have in saving the kingdom of Christ in this country and even around the world? Have you ever had this sense about your life? Listen, you should. For God has assigned you a responsibility which is an essential element in saving his eternal kingdom and his kingdom children in the United States and even around the world. The responsibility is prayer. Notice the exhortation in verse 1. It is to pray for everyone. Please catch, Paul urged Timothy to pray. He did not order Timothy to pray. Paul was an apostle, so he could easily have ordered Timothy to pray. But Paul was also Timothy's spiritual father. So instead of issuing an order, he earnestly appeals to Timothy to pray. Paul understood that orders can be accomplished rotely. They can be accomplished in a machine-like manner, a mechanical way, or without engaging yourself in what you're doing. To effectively pray, a person's heart must be engaged. For prayer involves much more than expressing or articulating a few words. Our problem, including me, is that we like to express a few empty words and then we immediately get actively engaged in solving the problem. Paul appeals to us to first of all, engage ourselves in heartfelt prayer before expending energy on confronting the issue that we're facing. In order of priority, heartfelt prayer is to be primary. It's to be our first option. Contemporary language, it's to be the go-to aspect of our life. Our actions and involvement with problems in life and people should be secondary. Yeah. It's very helpful to realize that the original word translated first in your copy of God's Word is the word protos. Our English word proton grew out of that word. Protons are tiny little particles with a positive charge which cause things to travel or cause things to move. What's the point? Engaging our hearts in prayer first should be what provides the positive charge to move forward with God's enabling strength to confront issues. All too often, we choose to act first. And then when things don't go well for us, we realize, oh yes, I I failed to ask God for wisdom, for enablement. And so after the fact, then we fall to our knees and we begin to pray. 
Now that our hearts, though, are engaged in prayer and motivated to pray, Paul directs our attention to the aim of our prayers, which, according to verse 1, is everyone, and that includes kings and all those in authority. As God's children, we are to share with our Heavenly Father's As God's children, we are to share with our Heavenly Father specific petitions. That's the word request there. And then prayers, general prayers. And we're to do that for the president of our country, for the governor of Ohio, for the local leaders in our towns and villages, right? We are also, it says, to make intercession. What is that? What's involved in making intercession? Recently, it's been a few months ago now, my sweet little wife found me laying in the middle of the floor in our bedroom about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was unconscious. Instantly, she began calling my name, As she knelt beside me, she was touching my face and calling my name, and I began to struggle to breathe and to struggle to understand where I was as the shadows of darkness were surrounding me, and little things were coming slowly into focus, but I didn't even know where I was. As Susie was caring for me at the very same time, she was dialing 911 and she was calling the EMTs to rush to our house and help me. That's intercession, folks. We step in and we do for others what they are unable to do for themselves. Intercession is the action of intervening on behalf of another person. Our national, state, even sometimes local leaders who are living outside of Christ are living in darkness. They're struggling to discern reality. They're struggling to understand the difference between right and wrong in their life and in the life of our country. We have the opportunity to make intercession for them. We're to do this with an attitude of thanksgiving, it says. Now, you might be wanting to raise your hand and say, Now, Brother Dave, the the Apostle Paul really doesn't understand our situation here in the United States today. I mean, our national and sometimes our local leaders are corrupt. I don't agree with any of their policies. I don't agree with any way they lead us. It's impossible to have an attitude of thanksgiving as I pray for them. Now, you know what? I understand your objection. But I want you to realize something. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and to the church family in Ephesus around the years of A.D. 63 to 65. 
Do you know what that means historically? That means that the pagan temple of Diana was in her prime in the city of Ephesus. It was a thriving part of their culture and city, of their business life, so much so that the business leaders of Ephesus had coins minted for their community to use for sale and exchange, and one word was printed on them, Neokoros, temple warden. Yeah, they were delighted that they were the temple warden of the cult for Diana. That's how pagan their culture was, and that was all pushed upon everyone who lived there, including your brothers and mine. In 64 AD, a fire started in the slums of Rome and in that city, and it destroyed huge amounts of that city. In fact, hundreds of people died, and thousands and thousands of people left homeless, were left homeless. And Nero, the emperor of Rome, blamed the cause of that fire on the Christians. And he began to arrest them, and he began to torture them, and he began to execute hundreds and hundreds of our family. In AD 70, the Roman army marched upon the holy city of Jerusalem and decimated that city and demolished the temple, the earthly dwelling place of God. Folks, Paul was aware of the character of those leaders when he wrote. He was living in it. He's aware that most worldly leaders are corrupt. And their rule is counter to God's kingdom and it causes trouble in the life of God's kingdom citizens. That's why he urged us to pray. And so the primary reason we pray is not so that we are pleased with our earthly leaders. No, no. The primary reason we pray is because it pleases God our Savior. Now that's what it says in verse 4. It pleases God our Savior. Our fatherly God has asked us to pray. When we as his children wholeheartedly obey and pray, he's delighted, he's pleased. Prayer is not about coercing God. It's not about persuading him to do something uh, that, that he doesn't want to do. It's not about twisting his arm through verbal badgering so that we can accomplish our will in life and obtain the leaders we want to have. Prayer is about accomplishing God's will on earth as it is done in heaven, Matthew 6.11, right? Here's something to tuck away into your mind. God will never answer your prayers in a way which will support or promote your idolatry. He will not do that. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you to be pleased with the idols that you want so badly. I just went through learning that for the last three months, okay? 
He wants our heart. And he doesn't want us bowing before idols, even if they're our own boys, okay? Or even if they're the political leaders we want. God will never answer your prayers in a way that will support or promote the idolatry in your life. As our eternally wise and loving Father, God blesses us with what he knows is best for us to accomplish his purpose in our life and then through our life. When our prayers align with God's will, our fatherly God may be pleased to hold back the opposition of earthly leaders so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. A quiet life pictures absence of trouble afflicting us from the outside, and a peaceful life portrays a tranquil person who has no troubles inside his life, right? Simply stated, this means God has designed the prayers of his people to be a boulevard along which he sends from heaven peaceful and orderly governments to nations in this world as he wills. As a senior citizen, and by the way, I've noticed some of you have followed me in my footsteps and become senior citizens. But as a senior citizen of the United States, we were raised in a country which experienced this blessing from God, right? But in in recent years, many U.S. citizens have abandoned their awareness of God and they've forgotten how to pray. Now we are living in a country where God is urging his children to engage their hearts in sincere prayer so we can experience the blessings that he wants us to experience. Tranquil living can lead to tremendous opportunities to communicate the gospel to others. Why does God send this answer of a peaceful and quiet life? or a tranquil government and country in response to the prayers of his children? Is it simply because he wants one person saved? Is it simply because he wants the king or the president or your governor or your local leader to be saved? No, no. It's because he wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? Often, God ushers in quiet, tranquil, orderly, well-functioning age in countries to give his children an unopposed opportunity to communicate the knowledge of the truth to others. Specifically, this means for you and it means for me that God actually wants churches like Grace Chapel to freely carry out the Great Commission which he gave us in Matthew 28 where Christ said to us go and make disciples of all nations when he said that he wasn't simply telling church families to send missionaries to other countries around the world what Christ literally said was as you are going as you personally are going make disciples 
as you're carrying out your normal everyday life is what he's saying. As you're at work, as you're in school, as you're down at Lions Park, as you're having coffee with a friend at the coffee shop, make those you associate with into learners of Christ and followers after Christ. It is through knowledge of the truth that others will actually come to know Christ and become his disciples. So here's the challenge to me and to to you today. The challenge is to be spiritual Churchills in our age. Sense the life-altering, history-changing opportunity that God is setting before each one of us and seize a hold of it. Be a spiritual Churchill in your age, right? Now the exhortation is to sincerely engage our hearts in prayer. That often leads to the opportunity to express God's truth to others. This is found in verse 5 through 7. So the opportunity we see here starts, and I'll go to verse 7, because in verse 7, Paul says, for this is the purpose that I was appointed a herald. That's just a proclaimer. And an apostle. That's a special messenger. And a teacher. That's an instructor of the truth, of the true faith to the Gentiles. Paul's purpose in life was to be a communicator of the knowledge of the truth of the true gospel to all people regardless of the situation he found himself in. Now, Paul lived historically in an age that is called the Pax Romana. It was an age when peace presided over the entire Roman Empire, which was extensive and massive. It was an age of tranquility and Freedom of travel uh, was easy. You could go anywhere in the Mediterranean region. Even though opposition to the true gospel increases during that age, Paul's purpose or essential assignment in life didn't change. Whether it was peaceful or it was increasing in persecution, his purpose didn't change. In this age of quiet and peaceful life, Paul, though, was to take advantage of the Pax Romana to communicate the true gospel in every way possible. And as he was to do it as a proclaimer, as an instructor, as a special messenger of the Lord, whatever opportunity came his way. Now, you know what? You and I have been placed in the United States, in Ohio, in Logan and Champaign County, most likely, for all of us, during an age of peaceful and quiet living for the very same purpose. This is our opportunity to be communicators of the true gospel in any way we have opportunity. Paul shares the true gospel message with us With these words in verse 5 and 6, he said, There is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in proper time. 
Let me just illustrate this message for you with a little true story here. During the early years uh, of England, Great Britain, I should say, prosperous days in history, um, a very wealthy family invited another wealthy family to their estate to enjoy a summer vacation. A couple days after this family arrived, just these terrifying screams of panic and fear were heard in the area of the swimming pool. The gardener ran towards the sound. He dove into the pool. He rescued a little child in that pool that was drowning. After assuring that little child was safe and and he was breathing well, the gardener placed that little child into the arms of his parents. The name of that little child was Winston Churchill. Winston's parents were so grateful to the gardener and his heroic act to save their little boy that they asked him, is there anything at all that we could do for you? And the gardener indicated that he too had a little son. He wanted him to attend university and get a higher education, but he was unable to afford it. The Churchills assured the gardener that they would pay for their son's university education. Years later, Winston Churchill was serving as the Prime Minister of England, and he contracted a very severe case of pneumonia, and he was lying on death's door. The King of England was so concerned that he called the very best doctor in their entire nation. The doctor's name was Alexander Fleming. He's the man who discovered penicillin. And he came and he administered that antibiotic to the dying prime minister and he lived. Dr. Alexander Fleming was the gardener's son. After recovering, Winston Churchill made this comment. He said, I am the only man saved twice by the same family. Brothers and sisters, that's our message. That is the message that we have to share with everyone we associate with in life. The one God, God the Heavenly Father, sent his son into the world to save people who are lost and drowning and dead in their pool of sin. The price God paid, and I can't fathom this price, the price God paid was he sent his son that he had loved for eternity. He gave him up for us. The reality is that the Son then came and the man Jesus Christ gave himself up as a ransom for us, for the lives of everyone who will truly repent, truly come to life-altering faith in God. That one mediator, Jesus Christ, will take us back to our Father. So you see, we too have been saved twice by the same family. Our Heavenly Father gave up His Son 
for our salvation, right? And Jesus Christ, the Son, gave up his life to release us from the bondage of sin. The personal challenge to you and I as we move into this new year is to pray. Pray. Don't do something first. Pray. Let prayer be the thing that moves you to what you should do. But pray always. And then proclaim. How often? Always. Whatever situation you're in. Right? Pray and proclaim. Let's pray. High King of Heaven, Lord of the years and sovereign over time and history, grant to us such an overpowering knowledge of who you are that our trust in you will be unshakable. Grant to us also a sufficient understanding of the signs of our times in which we live so that we may know how to serve your purpose in our generation, and to more truly be the people you want us to be in this world today. To that end, Lord, revive us again. Draw us closer to yourself and closer to each other. Where there's false contentment with our present situation in life, sow in us a holy restlessness. Where there's discouragement, grant us fresh hearts, Lord. And where there's despair, be our hope again. For your name's sake, empower us to be salt and light in this world so that you will be glorified and we will know your eternal peace forever through Christ. Amen.